Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, an employment lawyer with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we're also fortunate to have the opportunity to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe, providing updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Joining us today on this special ELA podcast program are Nita Beecher with Fortney Scott in Washington, D.C., and Fiona Ong with Shaw Rosenthal in Maryland. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much, Tara. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Tara. It's been an exciting weekend here right before Christmas. You're absolutely right. So as we know, last Friday, December 17th, we learned that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in a two-to-one decision dissolved the stay that was previously placed on OSHA's emergency temporary standard by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so today, Nita and Fiona will be providing further insight on what this decision means for employers and employment requirements for vaccinations, face coverings, and testings. So before we get into that, and as you mentioned, it was a pretty big weekend for OSHA, but Fiona, maybe you can start with reminding us, what is this emergency temporary standard that was first issued by OSHA, and how did this all begin? Sure. Well, the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 was passed by Congress to assure safe and healthful working conditions for the nation's workforce and to preserve the nation's human resources. That's a quote from the act. And the Secretary of Labor is authorized to set mandatory occupational safety and health standards. Now, normally standards are subject to a 30-day notice and comment period. OSHA then issues a standard with or without revisions based on those comments, and it can also decide not to issue it. But if there are emergency circumstances, OSHA can issue an emergency temporary standard or ETS. And this ETS takes immediate effect. It normally lasts six months, and this period acts as the notice and comment period. And at the end of the six months, OSHA can do one of three things. They could issue a regular standard or extend the emergency standard or allow it to end. And an affected party doesn't like the ETS, they can file a petition to challenge the standard in a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. So that's all a very helpful background. Nita, let me jump to you. Part of what the OSHA ETS talks about are vaccination requirements. When did President Biden first propose vaccine mandates? Well, I think we have to go back. So Initially, it was hoped that when the vaccines came out, that the pandemic would basically be over. And in the summer, it looked like that, May, June, then Delta. Delta came and all bets were off. So in September, on September the 9th, the president went on to television and announced basically three separate vaccine mandates. The one we're talking about today, the OSHA ETS, one from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which we'll talk about very briefly for healthcare workers and also their federal contractor mandate, which we'll mention as well. But the ETS, the president announced the ETS on the 9th. It wasn't published until November the 5th. And as Fiona just mentioned, it goes into effect as soon as it's published in the register because it is an emergency temporary standard. I think it's important to point out to everybody that we see this in a lot of the decisions that have subsequently come out as a jab for your job. That is incorrect. It's very important to remember that what the ETS says is either the employer decides, do you either have mandatory vaccines for your employees or weekly testing? 
where you can have some people can get vaccinated and some weekly testing. This is for employers with 100 or more employees across the country. And they had to be, initially, they had to be in compliance with everything but the testing by December the 5th. And everything and the testing would begin on January the 4th. So there were a couple of really interesting things really quickly. And Fiona, you probably have some additional guidance on this. One, employers were required to pay employees regular working time for the time they went to get a vaccine if it was during working hours. And if someone got sick from the vaccine, they had to provide them with paid leave. And so those things were a big issue initially. But Fiona, any other things that we just want to cover before we get into the litigation itself? Sure, Nita. I think it's important to mention that it's not just testing, but also face coverings. And so employers are required to have employees wear face coverings as well as get the weekly testing if they're unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. And just to follow up on that quickly, Fiona, in addition, in those parts of the country, which probably now is like everywhere, everything's red on the CDC. We have to wear a mask inside. And there are very limited places where you don't wear a mask under the CDC guidance, which is significant or high areas of COVID. And so that was the standard at a basic level. Yeah. And I think it actually now even goes beyond that because that CDC guidance talks about public indoor spaces. And many employers were interpreting that to mean like spaces that were available to the public versus communal spaces. And the ETS actually would require employees who are in non-public but communal spaces to wear those masks. I think that's an important point. But I think the whole point here is that we just want to reiterate, it is not a jab for a job. It is mandatory vaccines or testing and masking. Yeah, those are excellent details to clarify. And so since the ETS was first published on November 5th, it's been a little bit of a litigation roller coaster. So talk to us about the litigation history of the ETS injunction and where things stand today. Sure. There were obviously petitions challenging the ETS filed in every single one of the 12 U.S. circuits. And the very next day after the ETS became effective on November 6th, the Fifth Circuit issued a nationwide injunction saying that the federal government was not going to be able to prevail on the reasons that it issued the ETS. Now, there are these rules for multi-district litigation. And what it says is that there will be a lottery among all the circuits in which the petitions are filed. And in this case, the Sixth Circuit won the lottery. And so all the petitions were then consolidated before that court. Typically, a three-judge panel of a circuit court decides cases. Now, many times in cases of significance, however, the full or what's called en banc court may take on the case initially or it might review a panel decision. In this particular case, the members of the court voted on December 15th whether or not to hear this matter en banc. A majority of the court has to vote to proceed on banc, but the vote was evenly split. So no on banc proceedings here. It was left in the hands of a three-judge panel. So Fiona, one thing I wanted to point out is you probably read the strongly worded dissent in the decision for the three-judge panel over the on banc reading of this by the chief judge who was, I mean, beside himself on whether this should have been heard on banc which is very interesting because we now suspect that he knew who was going to be on the panel and he knew what Mm -hmm. the decision would be on the very first question that was going to come before that panel. Right. Yes. It was quite an agitated opinion (laughs) or dissent, I should say. 
So here we are now, and we do have a decision that was frankly quite surprising, I think, to many legal observers. So we have the ruling on December 15th, where the Sixth Circuit rejected a request for en banc consideration. Nita, talk to us about what happened on Friday, December 17th. Well, on Friday, December 17th, the three-judge panel lifted the Fifth Circuit's stay of the ETS, which had been in place, as Fiona pointed out, since the day after the ETS became effective. So since November the 6th, we have had this ban on the ETS from being implemented or enforced, which means we don't have additional questions. There've been no additional information coming from the Department of Labor. So the decision was to lift, the Sixth Circuit voted to lift the Fifth Circuit's injunction or stay against the ETS. And they did it in, it was two to one. The opinion was written by the Honorable Jane B. Stanch, who wrote an incredibly good decision. She went through all of the requirements to get a preliminary injunction, one after the other. But I thought the most interesting thing to me was at the end when they lifted the stay, her opinion was the ETS is an important step in curtailing the transmission of a deadly virus that has killed over 800,000 people in the United States brought our healthcare system to its knees and forced businesses to shut down for months on end and cost hundreds of thousands of workers their jobs. In all the other opinions where they have put injunctions in, not a single judge has mentioned all the dead we have had from this virus. And so you knew right away in the opening sentence, which mentions the 800,000, which actually was the number of dead hit on the day this opinion came out. The Judge uh, Staunch was appointed by President Obama. She was joined in that opinion with Judge Julia Gibbons, who was appointed by George W. Bush, who said, I agree with everything she said. And the third member of the panel, who is also a woman appointed by Trump, in fact, I understand Judge Larson was on his short list for the Supreme Court as well, I think when Amy got her nomination. But basically, the dissent did what we have seen in the Fifth Circuit, basically said the Fifth Circuit was right all along, and that the unvaccinated should be allowed to decide whether or not they're going to be vaccinated. The interesting thing about this is it completely misses the whole point, which they can continue to be unvaccinated. They just have to be testing and masking. So that puts us, you know, up to date as of, I don't know, maybe eight o'clock Eastern time on Friday night, and then things kept going after that. Right. I do think another interesting point that Judge Stanch made in her decision is she noted that in passing the OSHA Act, Congress expressed its intention to preempt state and local standards that conflict with OSHA standards. And I think that's an important point to make because it certainly supports OSHA's position that its emergency temporary standard is going to preempt all of these proliferating, opposing, you know, state orders and and laws that are being passed very quickly in these red states. So this ruling came in late Friday evening. There's been a lot of developments since then. How did OSHA and the parties respond to the lifting of the injunction? Well, DOL and OSHA have issued a statement that, quote, OSHA will not issue citations for noncompliance with any requirements of the ETS before January 10th and will not issue citations for noncompliance with the standards testing requirements before February 9th so long as an employer is exercising reasonable, good faith efforts to come into compliance with the standard, end of quote. 
In other words, the deadlines have been extended to January 10th for everything but the testing requirement, which now has a deadline of February 9th. And that means February 9th is also the de facto deadline to get the second or only shot of the COVID vaccine, if that's going to be the choice. You're not going to be surprised to hear that nearly immediately, numerous parties filed an emergency application and motion with the U.S. Supreme Court requesting reinstatement of the stay. And several applicants requested that the court take the unusual step of granting certiorari, meaning to take up the merits of the case before judgment is issued in the circuit court, which would be the normal process. So Judge Kavanaugh is a circuit justice for the Sixth Circuit and has discretion on whether or not to act on the emergency applications alone or refer the request to the full court. So we're going to have to wait to see what happens with that. And it looks like earlier today, the federal government has a deadline of December 30th to respond to those appeals. Is that correct? That's what I'm hearing. We're also hearing that it's going to be December 30th. I am assuming they're giving extra time because of the holiday to get everybody because people are probably have plans and so forth. But hopefully sooner rather than later, I'm already getting questions from clients. One thing I wanted to mention that's in the dissent and is in a lot of the other decisions that have been made is this non-delegation power in this argument that is being used against all the vaccine mandates that Congress could not delegate this authority to the executive side of the House without, you know, the specific direction of Congress. And depending on how the Supreme Court goes with this, this could be a huge decision impacting lots and lots of other executive decisions that are being done all the time in every agency of the federal government. Yeah, I mean, the ramifications of this ruling and depending on what the Supreme Court does with it is going to have a ripple effect on many other issues, it would seem. How about on, on that particular issue, what is the impact of this ruling on federal contractors? We know there's a vaccine mandate that's currently suspended with respect to contractors. Where does that issue stand? Well, we're not sure. So here's the point. There is an exemption in the ETS, which basically says that it does not cover workplaces that are covered by the guidance of the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, or Task Force, as I call it, because it's a mouthful. Um, (laughs) And so the question becomes, with the federal vaccine mandate having been enjoined across the country, those workplaces are not at this time covered by the federal vaccine mandate? Or is there an argument that if you have the contract clause in your contract for the federal vaccine mandate, you are covered by the federal vaccine mandate and not the ETS? So we don't know. If it were not for the federal vaccine mandate, these employers would be covered by the ETS if they have 100 or more employees. So we're waiting, and I suspect The task force, which has been pretty diligent about getting information out there, is waiting to see what the Supreme Court does. And what if an employer wanted to get creative where they would otherwise be covered by OSHA's ETS, but in the interim, they decide that they want to try to become a federal contractor? Are they going to be able to avoid the impact of the ETS? Well, you see, you don't get covered by the ETS unless you have a contract that has the contract clause requiring you to be vaccinated you know, to have your employees vaccinated. And that is a jab for a job. Right now, there's no testing option except under very limited circumstances. I'm not sure that would be the easiest way to get out of this at this point. We just don't know. I think you just have to wait and see what kind of guidance comes out to see how this plays out. 
Moreover, I think that, you know, there you take on so many obligations beyond the vaccine mandate or not if you become a federal contractor that I'm not sure that that really is the, the best path forward for someone who is trying to avoid the ETS. There's another interesting piece back on the non-delegation. In the opinion that is working its way through the courts, because unlike the ETS, the federal vaccine mandate had to start in the district court. The Eastern District of Kentucky issued a decision which basically says that the president can't use his Procurement Act powers to expand requirements on these employers without specific Congress authority. And so this, again, could potentially, depending on the decision, undercut many of the things that federal contractors now have to do, including affirmative action which is so well-loved by our Supreme Court at present. So we have a January 10th compliance deadline, and this is all happening a week before Christmas and two weeks before New Year's. Fiona, when do you think we can expect a Supreme Court ruling on these issues? Well, given that the responses are not supposed to be filed until December 30th, I think certainly it's going to be after that date that we're going to hear something. And likely, you know, after the New Year, because certainly nobody's going to be in a position to do anything over the New Year's holiday. So I'm guessing immediately after the new year, we're going to get something from the Supreme Court. And, you know, by the way, in addition to this ETS, the federal government has also asked the Supreme Court to lift the injunction on the contractor mandate, as well as the 25 state injunction on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services vaccine mandate for those Medicare and Medicaid certified providers. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of these requests that are pending before the Supreme Court. A lot going on right now. And so in the interim, what do you think employers should do who are covered by the ETS? I think they really need to look at what the requirements of the ETS are. What things can you go ahead and do? For example, I would look at the list of things that need to be done by the January date and then get your testing as subsequent to that. But, you know, the policy, survey for vaccination, gather the proof and a bunch of things like that make it available to your employees to go get vaccinated, do your training and so forth. And make sure, I think all employers who are working in the workplace now should be having their employees masked if they are not already doing so. Yes. And I would point out that in determining whether you're going to do a mandatory vaccination policy or one that allows employees to test and mask in place of the vaccination, OSHA has actually provided model policies. So it is, you know, very helpful to look at those and just fill in what is necessary for each individual employer. There are choices that you can make along the way in in these policies. And so they're pretty easy to tailor. And and because there are so many very specific technical requirements for the policy, it's like FMLA, use the form, right? So just go ahead and use the form, fill in the individual details and, and make those decisions, but start thinking about it. I mean, certainly to the extent that If an employer is thinking about a testing option, there are going to be a lot of logistics around the tests, you know, where the tests are going to be done. Are they going to be done on site or off site? And how quickly will they be done? When should they be scheduled? There's just a lot of practical considerations that employers should be thinking about if they're going to consider using the testing option. And you also have requirements for exemptions. You still have those requirements, although I would argue that the testing is an exemption from the religious and medical, but I think it's important to get that in place so you know who you have issues with and and then you can move her there. Exactly. 
There are, you know, some other additional requirements under the ETS. I think that the FAQs on OSHA's website are quite helpful. And I think pretty much every law firm has done some sort of client alert on what employers need to do in order to become compliant with the ETS moving forward. So, you know, certainly I think clients should be contacting their employment counsel for assistance with those issues if they can't quite figure it out on their own. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and we know we're all living these issues in real time and changes are happening day by day. So I want to thank you both for your time and for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you and happy holidays to everyone. You too. If you would like to connect with Nita or Fiona, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. You can also search the ELA website at ela.law, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.